It's the 28th of May, 2017, and this is episode 332 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. An article yesterday about People's Bank of China researcher, can cryptocurrency and central banks coexist? And the summarized version is yes, if central banks and commercial banks introduce digital currency wallets into their existing bank account system so people don't go around them. <laughs> That's in no way dumber than the American bank, a currency bank, which is the Federal Reserve, yeah. which said that a blockchain-based currency would work for the Federal Reserve if the Federal Reserve were in custody of all the bank's private keys. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was here at a conference in New Zealand and they were talking about kind of New Zealand's federal central bank blockchain. Uh, and they said, you know, we, it would be decentralized in its use, but we would just hold one master key for the issuance of the currency. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so reading from the article on Coindesk, this is uh, about halfway down at uh, digital currency attributes, quote, to offset the shock to the current banking system imposed by an independent digital currency system and to protect the investment made by commercial banks on infrastructure, it is possible to incorporate digital currency wallet attributes into existing commercial bank account systems so that electronic currency and digital currency are managed under the same account. <laughs> so anyway, so, so here it is. So at the bottom, then it says, this approach would not lead to commercial banks being channelized or marginalized because customers in their accounts are still managed by the account bank. Unlike money transfer, digital currency does not completely rely on bank accounts and the ownership of digital currency can be verified directly by the issuing bank so as to realize peer-to-peer -peer cash transactions via digital currency wallets on the user end. So basically what this is saying is that the solution for at least the People's Bank of China to deal with this is to make it so that banks can actually have cryptocurrency accounts in them. So there isn't the temptation for people to go and actually hold their own keys, but instead they can just make it part of their normal, convenient, we own all, all of your stuff system. <laughs> so I, it was, you know, it's a very cheerful article about it. But the takeaway really from my perspective was that, you know, this is happening. And the question is, are they going to integrate it into the system or are they going to be marginalized by it and channelized, as they say, by not? The title of the article was something like, Can Central Banks and cryptocurrencies coexist well they coexist now it's just that they don't all exist in your conventional bank account right with like a with a a status quo bank yeah the real title should be can we find a way to avoid being disrupted through wishful thinking and the answer is no We've seen this before. Now, I'm probably going to reveal my age by talking about this, but do any of you remember Integrated Services Data Network or ISDN? I had an ISDN. I I know I know ISDN. Yeah, but we're radio professionals, so we don't count because that's a radio thing. <laughs> I've, I've never heard of that in my life. Yeah. So this was in the late '80s, early '90s when TCP/IP had not won yet. And so you had competing networks. You had X25, which is a packet-switched network managed by carriers. You had TCPIP, and they introduced this new thing called Integrated Services Data Network, which was kind of a, let's give you a digital line that comes to your house, 128 kilobit uh -huh. um, system that could also do phone calls and fax and had differentiated services on it. But it charged you by the minute, so it's kind of 
have our cake and eat it too approach by the telecoms. Now, if you haven't heard of it today, it's because this failed. And it was the equivalent of, hey, we can do a digital currency too, without really understanding what it is that differentiates the peer-to-peer open-ended end-to-end capability of these digital currencies they're competing with. They, the carriers at the time didn't understand what the advantages of you know decentralized end-to-end IP connections and non-metered data connections that weren't counted a minute, but instead based on packets, would do to their network. And they did get channelized, and they did get marginalized, and they did lose the long-distance phone call market, and they did have to reinvent themselves as ISPs until eventually they ended up running all of the phone networks on top of IP and IP1. Same thing happens here. This is the fundamental equation that they don't get. If I have one Bitcoin in one account, then the level of security that I have to apply to my keys is the level of security required to protect one Bitcoin from attack. And an attacker would have to find me and attack my keys to get to that Bitcoin. If we take a thousand customers and we take their thousand Bitcoin, we put them into centralized control by a single bank. The amount of security they have to apply to protect that is 1,000 times greater than the amount of security each of the customers would have to apply on their own wallet. So they have to get a thousand times better at security in order to protect the accounts of a thousand customers. If they have a million customers, they have to get a million times better at security. And there is no million times better than security. So they will get hacked again and again, spectacularly for millions of dollars if they do this. And that's a lesson that can only be taught hard way. So the problem is they don't understand that what these digital currencies solve is not simply sovereignty of the individual and control over the keys, but the fundamental security problem of we don't know how to secure information if it's centralized. And they think they can, but they can't. Because you, if you increase the value of the honeypot without increasing the security by the equal measure, get hacked. Uh, Andreas, how does multisig play into that equation? Because I agree with you under most circumstances, but it seems like you can use multisig to kind of mix together centralization with decentralization characteristics and to hopefully get kind of the best of both worlds. So you could still have a central service that holds, you know, one of multiple keys. And then so long as each, as so, let's say this is a bank, right? Let's say the banks decided to do this and they didn't want to take custody. So instead of having single signature keys, they actually did let the uh, end user have a key, but then they also had a key as well so that they could initiate transactions and do things like that on the user's behalf. Is that a one multiplier? Is that like a zero multiplier? Where kind of in the centralization do you think something like that fits? Well, it creates some interesting conundrums because you've got to think of this as balancing the competing incentives, right? So if they do a multi-sig where the bank holds one of the keys and the customers hold the other of the keys, what did they gain? Because from one perspective, the customer still maintains control. So they didn't manage to centralize control. This is competing and disrupting them just as hard as a decentralized system. Uh, they've got control over one of the keys. If they have the majority of the keys, then it's, from a security perspective, entirely equivalent to a custodial account. If they have a minority of the keys, then from a control perspective, it's entirely like a decentralized system because they can't freeze, seize, or, or spend the customer's money. So they really don't have control. They're just a third-party um, backup. Uh, for the keys. And, you know, from a security perspective, it doesn't solve that fundamental equation. And we saw this play out in full color 
with the Bitfinex hack. And what we saw is that if you hold one of the keys for a very, very large concentration of money in a multisig, and the way you execute transactions is by robo-signing transactions as they come through an API, then an attacker who takes over the other keys can then make you robo-sign all of the transactions and drain the hot wallet. So it doesn't solve the security problem. It doesn't solve the control problem. It doesn't limit the disruption because it doesn't change the fundamental equation really much at all. It just adds complexity. If you peel the onion in the center, it's just the same. So I don't really get this. There's a lot of this attempt to try to find ways to reconcile traditional institutional control structures and digital currencies, because they think that what these digital currencies are disrupting is the mechanism of payments, the protocols used to do the payments, the technical aspect. What these systems are really disrupting is the concept of institutionalized hierarchical control. And if you can't reconcile those two things. I think one of the uh, somewhat gleeful attitudes I have towards the idea of central bank money is that eventually you're going to have the master key leak on WikiLeaks or be captured by Anonymous. I just have this image in my mind of the central banker waking up in the morning, turning on their master console system, and there's a little cheeky message that says, you know, all your central bank money are belong to us with an anonymous logo behind it. And they've taken essentially an entire country's monetary system under ransomware. Please send a Bitcoin payment of a billion dollars to this address to get back your monetary system. So, I mean, okay, so so let me chase a rabbit with you then on this. So the Bitfinex thing, right, like that was one of the very early deployments of multisig in a real mainstream situation. And the reason why it didn't work, as you said, is because they were basically robo-signing. I don't think that's something we're going to see moving forward from these systems, or at least I would hope not, because the whole point of it, as you said, is to actually make it so there's not that single point of failure. And so you have this decentralized kind of network where you actually need to, you know, if in order to hack Bitfinex, you actually need to hack Bitfinex plus all of their customers, then that's a less convenient transfer situation on the exchange. But it's actually most of the decentralized value that you would get out of it, right? Yes, and it's a sliding scale. So effectively, you can, under certain circumstances, use this technology to make the underlying system 10 or 100 times more secure so that you can centralize it 10 or 100 times. But you can't make it 10,000 or 100,000 times more secure so that you can centralize it to that degree. So the problem is it's a system of trade-offs. And the more you centralize, the more vulnerable it is, the more of a honeypot you create, the more attractive it is to attackers to greater lengths. And they will go to greater lengths to, to attack you. And at the same time, as you're doing that, you're also sacrificing control. And the whole point of this was to try to maintain control uh, under this onslaught of digital currencies whose primary differentiator is that they take away control and give it back to individuals. And so I don't really see what the point of that is. But the fact is we are going to have the entire spectrum, right? We're going to have the entire spectrum from completely decentralized or as much as possible decentralized to completely centralized. Just as Stephanie said, as we have today, central banks exist, banking exists, and they do have digital systems like SWIFT, which do get hacked because it's a big honeypot. And we also have the decentralized systems and they will have to compete. 
and people will have to discover which model of trust they actually trust more, and which one shields them from geopolitical risk, and which one is politically neutral, and which one can apply currency controls and lock them into a hyperinflating currency, and which one can't, and which one can be used as a safe haven, and which one can be used for autonomy and sovereignty of the individual and to give them freedom, and which one is just the same as business as usual. And the difference is now we have choice. So we'll explore the entire spectrum and see who gives a better solution to people's problems, depending on what those problems are. Uh, I, I think that banks, central banks, will never be able to issue a true digital currency because that's not their job. That's not what they want to do. And in fact, that's not what regulators would allow. If you, if you look at the, uh, you can Google it, it's the war on money. Every year, less currency is put into issuance by every major economy than is printed back into the economy. We're slowly becoming a digital system where you don't have the bearer bond form of the asset. And if you look at what the dollar can do and what it represents in terms of the physical piece of paper you can hold that is not traced, that is bearer bond, that cannot be censored when you transfer it, and you were to take any of those characteristics, combine them all together, and then tell a regulator, this is a new financial instrument that I want you to approve, you would never get approval on it. Dollars only exist today because they haven't eradicated it yet. It's not something that if you were to try to create, they would ever allow. So to the extent that a central bank would ever look at a system that is replicating bearer bond forms of currency, not custodied on your behalf representations of money, I don't ever see them being able to do that because that's not their goal and that's not what regulators are even going to allow. Yeah, precisely. They're going to create the trackable, surveillance, freezable, controllable version, which is what they're trying to do with the war on cash, and to create a cashless society where cashless is not a society that doesn't need cash. It's a society that no longer has the option of a free, commonly owned medium of exchange, uh, but has to mediate all of its transactions through controlled intermediaries who have captured the regulators in some countries or run by dictators in other countries. It's a dystopian scenario, but it's being presented in a hyper-efficient machine of progress. A paper currency is a permissionless transfer system, and any financial system that has permissionless transfers are things that central organizations would never wish to allow because it's against the mandate that they have. So I think that all of that is true, assuming that they have a choice in the matter. I think that's kind of always been the assumption that at least I had was that by introducing competition into the ecosystem in a way that can't really be stopped, you put a negative comparison against kind of everything else that's out there by which you actually have to compare. So it's like if all you know central banks are behaving in the way that they behave, then it's hard to look around the ecosystem and say, and, and all there are are central banks, then it's hard to look around the ecosystem and say, oh, well, this is bad behavior because if they're all doing it, then that says something kind of implicitly about you know the system in general if they're all kind of engaged in bad behavior. So lacking the point of reference like Bitcoin, it's difficult to look at the system objectively and say, oh, well, this is broken because of this reason. But with Bitcoin out there, it's very, very obvious and apparent. And it's something that's a little bit unique to Bitcoin in that just about anything else, you know, if Ethereum had started first, it's real simple. You just, you know, can the, the team, right? And like get rid of it, you know, get get them for grabbing the money. And, uh, and that's kind of the end of that. But Bitcoin, because it never really had that funding, because it never really had that leadership team, um, it's sort of as uniquely positioned to just sit out there 
just like a turn the punch bowl, you know, kind of wrecking the day for everybody else. So I don't think that we would ever see central banks come to it because they think that it's the best path forward for, you know, their mission. But I can definitely see them being pragmatic and coming around to it because they have to be competitive in a newly competitive space. So the question is, can they stop Bitcoin or can they stop cryptocurrency broadly? If the answer is yes, then they have no need to adapt. If the answer is no, then it seems like it's just a matter of time. I think the answer is no. And in fact, I think the more likely scenario rather than um, central banks adopting their own cryptocurrencies, which is a huge uphill struggle for them and very alien to their culture. I think what you're going to see instead is perhaps the more pragmatic and forced by context or consequence situation where a central bank has a fundamental collapse in currency, decides to create a pegged instrument against Bitcoin as a reserve currency, just like you see in failed country currencies where they adopt the US dollar or the euro as their national currency because they can no longer afford to print their own or because their own has become hyperinflated and can no longer be controlled. And they simply proxy out. They become a side chain, essentially, to the US dollar or the euro. But with that comes geopolitical implications and having adequate supply and all of the other problems that, that happen there. And so I do see a future where Bitcoin can serve the same role, but in a much more neutral capacity from a geopolitics perspective. Of course, that's not going to happen until you have a lot more liquidity in the market until Bitcoin is more broadly adopted and can support bigger economies. I do see it happening probably before central bank issued pseudo decentralized pseudo blockchain currencies. So I'm raising money with Tokenly, and I'm trying to be responsible about it. We've done all of our projections. We've been talking with VCs. We've been doing valuation stuff. We've been trying to be conservative and responsible and respectful of kind of the process of doing this. And I'm watching this ICO thing, and it's just killing me. I don't understand what is wrong with me for not going down this path, because legitimately, the projects that are launching now that we've all seen launch have no product behind them. They might have a proof of concept, usually not. Sometimes they have a white paper, usually not. They have a nice website, that's usually true, but that's pretty much the extent of it. And what I'm hearing from the people who I'm talking to is that actually it's much more attractive to invest into ICOs than it is to invest in actual equity in a company simply because of the liquidity. And this is creating some bizarre incentives in the system right now. So I just wanted to kind of have a general conversation about it's seeming to me at this point that it is becoming irresponsible if you are funding a company that is in the cryptocurrency or token space to not try to do an ICO that raises money where you're not actually selling equity out because the money is out there and the money is going into these projects. And many of them are never going to actually produce anything real. But for projects that are actually real and are doing this the kind of traditional way, the valuations are totally insane. You know, you were talking about the one that had, you know, sold the 17 million for 1%, right? And it's, it's exactly that. It's like, if you're talking about a valuation in an ICO, then you're easily talking about, you know, tens of millions of dollars. But if you're talking about a startup that's pre-revenue, then you're talking about sub $10 million the vast majority of the time. And if you watch something like Shark Tank, then you'll often see companies that actually have revenue going for under $5 million simply because the valuations and the spaces are so aggressively different. So I've been very conservative on to this, this to this point because we're a US-based company at Tokenly, and I'm just generally quite risk-averse. I'm still in Bitcoin, but I'm risk-averse for the space. And Blockchain Capital, Brock Pierce's company, just did a token sale, I believe, a month or two ago. 
um, raised a bunch of money very quickly. Um, and they actually did it, I believe, as the first, not equity instrument, but as a legal security based out of the United States. And they followed the KYC and did kind of all of that. So I just, I, again, like there's no specific question here. I just want to throw this out there. Is this the beginning of the ICO thing? And is this just going to be the new way that people are funding these projects, including VCs participating, you know, in tokens rather than in equity? Or is this the ultimate bubble? And in the next six months, we're going to see, you know, this go horribly wrong. It's the second yeah, Adam, you said it's, you thought maybe it was irresponsible of you not to do ICOs. Irresponsible towards whom? I think you're being very responsible and respectful towards your investors and towards man- you know, managing realistic expectations of what your company's value is and what it's actually going to do and how much people could gain from investing in it. I mean, it, to me, it, it doesn't seem crazy at all to sort of play it safe when we have already seen so many horrible failures in these ICOs. And we've discussed this on the show before that, you know, there's some incentives to just sort of take a gamble, especially if it was like easy money to begin with. Like if you put, I don't know, a Bitcoin or 10 Bitcoins into Ethereum, you know, the initial crowd sale for that. And then you you got a bunch of money from that. Maybe you are a little more fast and loose with where you invested and the, the ICOs take advantage of that with slick marketing and not much else to back it up. So I think you are walking the more responsible path. It doesn't mean that there's not something about ICOs that is appealing, though. I mean, it it is definitely more convenient than most people wouldn't even know sort of where to start to if they wanted to invest in a company. Most people never invest in a company, you know, <laughs> whether it's most people don't even know anyone who has a company. right? <laughs> so making it easier and lowering those barriers to entry, like the minimum amounts and all the regulations and stuff allows more people to get into investing via ICOs. So that is a valuable thing. That's something that people want and people think is valuable. But the problem is, everybody takes advantage of it with tons of scams. And it just kind of keeps going because every once in a while, somebody makes some money. But that's the problem is that it's not every once in a while. You can actually look at this. And that's the thing about it is that I, I like to think of myself as a very rational value investor, you know, relatively speaking, again, like I'm super risk, you know, I'm, I'm very risky relative to conventional investors, but for the crypto space, not so much. So but that's, that's the thing about it is that uh, you asked, you know, who being uh, irresponsible towards whom? Towards the company, right? The the job of the CEO, which is what I am, is to represent essentially the fiduciary responsibility to to do the right thing on behalf of the shareholders and on behalf of the future of the company so it can succeed. And what I mean by that is that if you sell equity, then you're actually selling part of your company. And there are major complications and major rights, and you only have so much of your company in order to sell. But with these ICOs, that's not true. Like I'm, I'm talking about doing something that would actually be a legal security, following the same model of what the uh, blockchain capital folks did, and that is far above and beyond what the vast majority of these tokens are. Which are like, if you read the agreement, they're like, here's what we think it'll do, but it also could do nothing, and it could be worth nothing, and we actually might not ever wind up launching whatever the thing is that you're doing, and you're okay with that. Yeah. So, yeah, and you can't actually disclaim that risk. Here's the thing. This is not the first time this has happened. I think we need to recognize that this is the second uh, big bubble we've had in the space. The first one was the 2014 explosion of alts, the altcoins, right? And we saw all of these coins launch simultaneously and created this giant bubble. And then eventually by 2015, it started flowing back into Bitcoin as these mostly failed, didn't get listed. However, they launched 
a number of new exchanges and they really did create this whole ecosystem. And out of that came some good things, right? They came some interesting alternative cryptocurrencies. And, and I don't use the term alternative in a dismissive way. Some some very valuable blockchains got built out of all of this and some very interesting variations on the theme, differentiation, experimentation, innovation across the space. And now we're seeing the, the second big bubble. So the real question is, is this the future of crowdfunding? Is this the future of investment? Is this kind of a mid-tier between angel and VC, does it fill a gap in the spectrum of possible funding options? Will this revolutionize the funding of startups? Or is this one giant shit bubble? And really, both. <laughs> purely a matter of time frame. It's purely a matter of time frame. In the long run, without a doubt, this represents a completely new model, just like Kickstarter changed things. Um it represents a completely new model. It fills a gap. It opens it up to global investors. It makes a complete mockery of the term accredited investor, which is a pretty weak construct as is in the US and pretty elitist and not very rational. It changes the game completely and it will probably enable some fantastic startups to raise capital from a global audience in a way we've never seen before and exceed all lactations over the next few decades. Right now, it's a bubble. And, you know, we've got to realize that under normal circumstances, intracapital funds, 90 plus percent of these things fail. On Kickstarter, for most funded Kickstarters, with, which at least had a glossy video and a nice presentation and, and maybe a 3D rendered prototype, more than 95% of those fail to deliver a single thing to the participants of the Kickstarter. So what is the percentage here? I would put it above 99% failure rate, and that doesn't mean it's a waste of money. It's doing two things. It's teaching us how to structure ICOs. It's training investors by burning them on how to be careful about these investments. It's teaching companies what the best models for fundraising are. We've seen a number of different models for auctions, reverse auctions, Dutch auctions, limited issuance, unlimited issuance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's teaching us about how exchanges should respond to these and whether they should. We're seeing that with Ethereum tokens where you don't needs an exchange to list them. It's creating a whole new bounty of experience here for many of these companies. And we're going to learn a lot of things, but we're going to learn a lot of things by burning through a couple of billion dollars of money. Fortunately, the cost of money is zero. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing this bubble in every asset class across the world is because central banks have decided that the cost of money is zero. And when cost of money is zero, it distorts all investments, it distorts all markets, it destroys all price discovery, and it creates exuberance across the board. And some of that is spilling into cryptocurrencies. Why? Because you can't invest in real estate because that's inflated. You can't invest in stocks because those are in a bubble. You can't invest in automobiles because those are in a bubble. So now we find cryptocurrencies and dump $10 billion into them. And guess what? cryptocurrencies are now in a bubble too. So how much of this do you think has to do with just kind of the success of the previous tier of tokens versus how much of this, you know, do we think is actually new money coming in? Because my assumption has been for a while that this is profit taking from people who did well on things from Dash to Ethereum to Monero, you know, even to Bitcoin too. 
Oh no, I think it's it's new money coming in. I mean, we can see that in the in the inflows both into Bitcoin and to Ethereum from fiat. This is, you know, some of it is simply the gains in the first rounds, but a lot of this is fiat conversion. So we're seeing an enormous amount of fiat coming into this market right now, and it's driving up all of these valuations across the board and creating all of this exuberance and fear of missing out and greed. You know, the consequences are quite predictable here. So I'm thinking November, maybe November. It's uh, over by then. Anybody want to make a prediction? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, over in terms of what? This this particular round popping? Yes. Because as soon as it pops, then the next round starts. This is yep. not going to end. This is just going to be a sawtooth growth, very much like we've seen in, in Bitcoin, where you have successive mini bubbles that, that pop, but the overall trend is towards growth. ICOs are the future of crowdfunding. You see that on the long term, this is going to happen. The only question is, how many times is it going to blow up on a very large scale before you start seeing some successful companies come out of it? Well, can we also talk about how to safely do an ICO? I think Yeah, that's a good thing to talk about. That doesn't really have an answer. So well, one of the questions that's come up is, do you have a capped limit on, on the total amount invested? And what we've seen with various attempts to to do ICOs here is that this is a bit of a double-edged sword. The problem here is that you can't stop these tokens from being traded and secondary markets pop up immediately, which means that if you put a cap, let's say you're the responsible CEO and you say, okay, we're going to do an ICO, but we're going to cap it. We're only going to raise a million dollars or, you know, $2 million. That's it. That's all we need right now. We're not going to go crazy. We're going to raise $2 million. We've got an actual product, and that's going to be enough for our first two years, and then we'll do another round. Great. Here's what happens next. You put that in place. One, two, or three investors corner the market in the first few minutes, and they buy all of it up. And then they run a classic pump and dump with the token, and they run up the price and valuation by buying it very, very quickly in the beginning. And then they dump it all on the market before you even have a chance to take advantage of the raise. And the token is demolished. And so now what do you do? You didn't really raise anything. All you did was give the opportunity for some vampire investor to run a pump and dump, and you just gave them the token to do it with. And, and maybe you raised a tenth of what you wanted. So th this is the problem. If you put a cap on, you make it very easy for someone to do a pump and dump by cornering the market. If you don't put a cap on it, then you still have a pump and dump just on a much bigger scale with a lot more greater fools joining. And you can actually make some of the token conversions yourself to make a raise. And people have tried to do a reverse auction to, to avoid this problem. That's what Gnosis did. Failed completely. The point of a reverse auction is you start at a very high price and you start reducing it until people buy in. They started at a very high price, sold all of them in the first 12 <laughs> minutes, never got to reduce the price, Dutch auction failed. <laughs> we have not yet found a way to do this that actually delivers value to the company without creating an orgy of greed in the background and opportunities for pump and dumpers to, to corner the market. Well, what do you think about lockups then? Because that's something else that the uh, blockchain capital, if you purchased as an accredited investor going through the, you know, as a US-based accredited investor, 
then they lock up your funds for a year because legally you have to do that. They're not allowed to be transferred until uh, after that point. And then after that point, the essentially rule lets up and so they can give them to you in token form. But one of the things I was talking to our lawyer about actually is what happens to the people who aren't US-based accredited investors who purchased uh, that crowd sale and attested that they aren't US-based. Basically, they don't have to be accredited investors because they're not in the U.S. and the SEC doesn't care about you if you're not in the U.S. <laughs> is basically the argument that's going on there. So they can purchase blockchain capital, uh, wait the 40 days that they have on that one uh, while the accredited investors are still waiting the full year and then sell their tokens on the market. And U.S.-based accredited investors or not accredited investors can buy them from these markets. And as far as I can tell, it's not actually illegal to buy something like this. It's just illegal to sell it. So, I mean, like there are all of them and, and that's a legitimate security too. They actually went through the legal process in the U.S., filed the various things uh, in order to do it, did the meaningful disclosures, the KYC, the accredited investor stuff and the lockups. But even there, the secondary market seems like it kind of immediately puts a kibosh on any attempt to do this lockup. Yeah, and that's the problem with free markets. <laughs> I say problem within quotes because it's hilarious, is that you can't stop a market from emerging. A market emerges whether you like it or not. And a market for everything emerges whether you like it or not. Uh, a market is, is simply a mechanism that does price discovery when value is seen anywhere. And so if something has value, it has a market. And if it has a market, there will be price discovery and you can't control that. Um, it's really, we're discovering that these ICOs, part of the reason these rules exist, whether it's the accredited investor rules, whether it's the requirements before you do an IPO and all of these other things, or whether it's the fairly stringent checks that a VC would do, the due diligence that they would do before they go throw money into a startup, they exist for a reason. And while it is very freeing to drop all of these rules and go for a free-for-all. And that is a fantastic free market. There are unintended consequences and there isn't enough maturity in the technology yet to prevent those. I don't think we really have an answer here. And so with that in mind, I'd like to announce the launch of <laughs> Andreas Coin. <laughs> Oh, shut up and take my money, Andreas. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> to the moon! No. <laughs> to the moon. Yeah, I mean, th th actually, uh, Vinay Gupta just made a comment like that. I think uh, a lot of the people who are, are trying to be responsible in this in this space are looking at this and going, I mean, this is, it makes you feel like a complete fool for not doing it. You look at all of this stuff and you say, it's every idiot out there is raising multi-million dollar valuations on nothing but a auto-generated white paper. Why not, right? Just cash it in. I think Finney said, do a hundred million fundraiser, use a lot of the initial investment to hire some shark lawyers and retire. <laughs> um, and, you know, in this, in this environment, the only thing that's stopping that is the sanit investors who are more careful with their money. And I haven't met any of those in cryptocurrency. I know, right? I mean, like that, it, that really is the thing. Like I, like we've, uh, you know, we assisted with the augmenters ICO. And watching the behavior there, the people who were conservative were punished so severely because they missed out on a lot of, you know, monetary gains relative to what they would if they hadn't taken profits at two and a half times, right? 
So it's just, and like the people who are kind of the dumb money, you know, like they're the ones that are making a lot of money in this space because they're just like making, you know, betting the house, like people putting, you know, stuff on credit cards or mortgaging the house and like it actually works. So that's the crazy part for me is that this stuff shouldn't work. Yeah, but it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work, though, especially in the long term. Give them enough time and it'll the party will be over real quick. I mean, you just have to think about the long term. It it may look like you're getting punished in the short term, but in the long term, you're going to be rewarded because you didn't make these crazy plays. Yeah, and often the party ends when one of the uninvited guests who's a real bummer shows up. And in this particular case, that uninvited guest who is coming is, is called the SEC. And they're coming. So they don't show up on day one. They show up on year two after they've spent two years meticulously putting together a very robust case. And they only say hello, followed by indictments because they're ready when they say hello. The first letter you get from the SEC is the immediate prelude to indictments. We've seen that happen. And the time frame is usually about two years. They're coming. They're coming for all of these things. And I'm not saying that is a good thing. You know, there's a big problem with the fact that the SEC claims pretty much universal jurisdiction across the world. They're going to look at these terms and conditions that say, despite the fact that this looks, walks, and smells like a security, it's not a security. And they're going to laugh. In fact, they're going to be more harsh on people who try to play these legal sophistry games and shenanigans with terms and conditions and pretend that this isn't. And they're going to come and they're going to crack down on a lot of these offerings. The bottom line is that it, whatever you call it, if you are a promoter, which is the critical condition here, if you are a promoter, they can put you in prison. And this will happen. And it will happen not now. It will happen a couple of years from now. Well, I'm interested to see that. I have been waiting for that to happen. But it did, right? We saw the first ones were around things like Satoshi Dice, right? So we saw some settlements, out-of-court settlements there for the first round. And they happened a couple of years after the sale. Let me give you the range of time, right? Usually the minimum time you see is about two years. That's how long it takes them to put a case together. That's the bottom end. So X, which is the time we're looking for, is greater than or equal to two years. And less than or equal another magic constant number, which is called the statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly what it is in securities, but I think it's either seven or ten years or something like that. I'm not a lawyer. Have a look up. That is your range, right? Minimum two, maximum statute of limitations. And the fact that people have moved on and that they've done other things and that they think this is behind them matters not a bit to the SEC. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content was provided by Jonathan, Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening.